And as I've been sharing with you the last two weeks, this is the third week, um, these are just some reflections from the sabbatical that Carol and I had for 12 weeks from May, June, and July. And this last message that I want to share with you is really the culmination of all three. So if you were here, the first message was about experiencing Jesus' love deep in our hearts. That, that's where it begins, is that God wants to have a relationship with us so that we will know that he lives within us. And there's no greater joy, there's no greater fulfillment in our lives than knowing Jesus is in us. But that is not enough. Okay? God has created us to be part of a body or part of a family. And we belong to each other. And not only do we belong to each other, but we need each other. We need each other. And so last week's message was about how we experience Christ together as a church, how we experience Christ together as a family, and how when we do this, we become the people that God made us to be, not individually, but corporately. And we know that joy of what it means to share and to give and to have the lifeblood exchanged between one another. And if we don't do that, then we're not experiencing the fullness of life. So that was one, is that we have to have a personal relationship with two, with God. And two, that we have to share that with our family in Christ. But three, and that's today's message, is that the first two are not just enough. That God has created us to experience everything that Jesus wants us to have so that we share it with others who don't have Jesus yet. That God doesn't want us just to have a life where we are happy and he answers all of our prayer requests, but rather that those things do happen, but that we share Jesus with those who don't know Jesus yet. We live in a world that is in desperate need of Jesus. We've known that, therefore we've responded to that. But there are millions, billions of people in this world who don't yet know Jesus, and that's our responsibility. That's, that's our job, as God's given to us the opportunity to share Jesus with other people. So how does that relate to Israel? Okay, and, and how can I relate Israel to that? Or how did God teach me this lesson? Um, well, the first thing that we learned when we got to Israel is that we were in a desert. Okay? We were in a desert. Now, at first, it didn't seem so bad because the part of the desert that we were on had water. Right? Okay? So, so it was green, and I showed you pictures of that. Okay? But on the third and fourth day, we began to go right through the middle of Israel. And we began to see the desert. And so this is what we saw. I mean, basically just brown, just, just dirt and dust and mountains and wilderness. And, and the reason why these pictures are all hazy is because at that time of the year, there's a, a, a air that goes through and it lifts up all the dust and therefore it's always fuzzy. And the, the skies are always sort of misty or cloudy. And then we were talking to people there, and one guy said, you know, he's like 58 years old. He lived in Jerusalem all his life, and he said, it's the hottest May we've ever had. It was 115 degrees when we were on one tour in Masada. And so we were on this tour, and we also went to Qumran, and we were, that we were walking around, and there were signs. Okay, so this next one's a sign. 
Okay, and it says, you know, the wadi is the path to go out there. And so we were not allowed to go out on the path and see things that were nearby because it was just too hot. Okay, there was no danger of flooding. Uh, that's an old sign, but they've just said it's so hot, okay, that we couldn't go out there. Okay, so, so hot and heat. And, and so we were, as a tour group, we were talking about this because we we're just so sweaty and, and uncomfortable. And we realized that like, we have air conditioning, okay? We can jump in the tour bus, we can go into the museums, but God's people didn't have that. And it was always hot. And we were like, wait a minute, God worked with Abraham. Abraham came from Ur, Ur is in the desert. God worked with Moses, Moses was down in Egypt, Moses went out into the desert. God called Moses in the desert. David was called to be a king. He was in the place where it was the desert. David got thirsty. We go, why? And then, of course, Jesus, born in the desert, lived in the desert, died and resurrected in the desert. Why? So our tour guide was very knowledgeable. And he was a, a Christian. He was a Messianic Jew. He came to know Jesus when he was in college. So he, he seemed to know so much. And so we asked him, why do you think? Oh, his name was Mikhail. Mik, uh, yeah, Mikhail from, from Russia. And, um, but he, we called him Mickey. And so he said, hey, Mickey, um, why do you think God called all of his people to the desert? Why do you think God called Jesus to live and die in the desert? And he said, good question. I think the reason why is because in the desert, you are never far from death. And therefore, you must always depend on God. We thought about that. Good answer. And it made us think. We live in a world that's like a desert. We are not far from death. In Psalm 63, and you have it there, David wrote a psalm. In fact, it has a title. And it says, you know, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. And David writes and he says, you God, you God are my God. Earnestly, earnestly I seek you. I, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. No water. And that's what we saw. There's no water. Another psalmist, Psalm 42, he said, As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? The desert. It's a place of thirst. It's a place of hunger. It's a place of yearning. It's a place where not only do we need God, but it's the place where we meet God. And so we, we were wondering about this, and, and as I thought about how I might learn from this and how I might share this with you, and as I was looking through the scriptures, wondering what does Jesus teach us about thirst and about heat, because it's just so hot there. Then the story, this, this story, and maybe it's familiar to you, it's called the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. 
And we begin in John chapter 4, and we're in the desert. We're in the desert, and Jesus is there. And the Bible says in chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned this, he left Judea. He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now you look in your notes there, you see five points. Because this is the backstory. This is like the prequel to what's happening to the story that we're going to get to, the the main part of the story in verse 6. So what's happening here is Jesus is in his first year of ministry. He started his ministry up in the northern part of Israel and Galilee. So the next one is the map. Next picture is the map. There we go. And so Jesus began his ministry up here in the Sea of Galilee. But then he went down to Jerusalem, down here. And it's still the first year of ministry. And so the Bible tells us that he's in Judea. Okay, so that's where he is right now. All right? And he's doing his ministry. And, but as he's beginning more and more of his outreach to people, and more and more people are coming to him, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are getting a little nervous. And they're getting upset. They've already been persecuting John the Baptist. And so Jesus knows that his time is not yet. In fact, he's just beginning his three-year ministry. So Jesus knows that he has to leave so that they don't grab him and take him away and stop his ministry now. He has to go and he has to preach the gospel to other people. And so the Bible says that he goes from Judea and he's going to go up to Galilee. All right, so he's going to go up here. Well, Judea to Galilee is a three-day journey if you just go straight this way, all right? But the Jews of those days... The Jews of those days, they didn't always do that. In fact, what they would want to do is they would actually want to go around Samaria and up to Galilee. That would take twice as long. But Jesus knows that he has a mission. And it's not to avoid people. It is to reach out to people. He was, when he was in Jerusalem just then, those weeks, those were the times that he celebrated the Passover It was also the time that the most famous Bible verse happened when a man named Nicodemus went to go visit Jesus when he was in Jerusalem that first time. And Jesus said to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That happened there in Jerusalem at that time. But Jesus now has to leave and as he heads up through to Galilee, he's going to go through Samaria. But as I said, now a lot of the Jews, they didn't like Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like them. So what they would do is they would still go in Jerusalem, they would head over here, they would cross over the Jordan River, which was not that narrow right there, okay, not a little line, it was a big river. They have to cry for, they would go up here, and then after they got past Samaria, they just sort of cross back over the Jordan, and they go back up to Galilee. Well, why would they do that? Well, we have to understand a little bit of history, okay? So 700 years earlier, Israel was divided into two major kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. So our next map will show us that. Oh, the other way. There we go. And so um, down here, there's Jerusalem. This is the kingdom of Judah. Up here is the, the uh, kingdom of Israel. 
and the capital of Israel at that time is Samaria. And the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. Well, in 726, or about 720, 720 BC, um, there was a war, all right? And the king of Assyria attacked the northern kingdom, and they won. And so they deported people from the capital city, from Samaria. They deported the Jews that were living there, and they took them back to Assyria. Uh, the next map will show us that, all right? So they took them up to Assyria, all right? And then what they did is they took people from their kingdom around here from Assyria, and they moved them into Samaria to repopulate it. Well, what happened then was that the Samaritans through time began to intermarry with the Assyrians. And not only that, they began to worship the Assyrian gods, the cult gods. And so there was now this impurity that had come into the Samaritan race because they're no longer purely Jewish. They share blood with Gentiles. And so when the Jews knew of this, they despised the Samaritans. So the Jews of the southern kingdom, when they knew that those in the northern kingdom had gone intermarried with the Assyrians, they despised them. They were prejudiced against them. They were like another breed. They were a different people now. They had, didn't have pure blood. And even worse than that, they were worshiping false gods. And so the Israelites hated them. Well... About 125 years later, um, the next map is Babylonia attacked the southern kingdom. They attacked Judah, and they did the same thing. They took people from Jerusalem, they took the Jews, they put them into Babylon, and they repopulated Jerusalem with Babylonians. But the Jews of the southern kingdom held to what they believed, and they would not intermarry with the Babylonians. Well, in about 450 B.C., God worked a miracle. And the Jews in Babylonia were able to go back to Jerusalem. And they had to rebuild the temple. And so they tried to rebuild the temple. And when the Samaritans heard that they had been coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the, to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans went down to Jerusalem and said, hey, we'll help you to rebuild the temple. And the Jews said, we don't want your help. We don't need the likes of you. You just go back home. And so the animosity, the hatred continued until the day of Jesus. And so now, now we begin to understand why Jesus didn't avoid Samaria. He wouldn't avoid anybody. But why he specifically went to Samaria and why this story of the Samaritan woman is so important to us and so helpful for us to see how we should live. Because what Jesus was going to do was Jesus was going to not only just evangelize the Samaritan woman, he was beginning to evangelize the world, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And he cared about all people. And so we read in verse 6 that it says that Jacob's well was there and Jesus Tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. He sat down by the well. Well, as we look at Jesus in this story, we'll be able to look at both his character and his actions. And we'll be able to see who he really is because we are carrying him in us as believers. And just as Jesus was a man, certainly we know we are men and women. And so what Jesus did is he expressed his humanity. 
And this is, I think, one of the first things for you and me as we want to reach out to other people, as Jesus reached out to this unbelieving Samaritan woman, as we want to reach out to people who don't yet believe in Jesus, one of the best things we can do is just be human to them. We don't have to be special. We don't have to be creative. We don't have to be better. We just be ourselves. We just have to go out there and reach out to our brothers and our sisters in our neighborhood. We have to reach out to those in our, where we work, reach out to our family members who don't know Jesus. Just be ourselves. It's so important. Now, I'm a pastor, right? And so sometimes, like, when people find out I'm a pastor, they treat me differently. And so um, I always remember, I think it was Pastor uh, Rick Warren who said this, that when people see a pastor, they sort of see him as a salesman right? He's a salesman. He's selling Jesus. But when people see Christians, what they see are satisfied customers. They see people who have come to Jesus and known him, and they keep going back, and they have an interaction with him. And so I've experienced that in my life. Um, You know, people just treat me differently. And and one of the more more clear times is, and I used to go golfing a lot. I don't do that anymore. Um, But I used to go golfing quite a bit, and I enjoyed it so much that sometimes I'd just go out on my own, or I'd go out with just one other guy. And usually they send you out four at a time. So it's called foursome. And so I'm either by myself, I'm a single, or I'm in a, and I'm in a twosome. So I'm meeting other people. And usually at the first tee, all you do is you greet each other, and you shake hands, all right? And you just start golfing. And it takes a few holes, but eventually you're walking together and you're helping each other find your lost balls and, and you, you just sort of like start talking, all right? Well, almost inevitably somebody will, will say something and usually it's guys, right? So what do guys say? Guys say, what do you do, right? What do you do, all right? Now we've golfed a few holes and people have expressed their, you know, emotions and, and things haven't usually gone well, all right? And so, um, and so I, I, I'll say... Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. And you should just see the looks on people's <laughs> eyes. And I just remember, and, and they go, oh. <laughs> and, you know, and they can't hide it. And they go, please forgive my French. <laughs> you know? Because yeah. they've just been cursing all along the whole time, right? But I can't lie. Right? And so if possible, I try... In other situations, just knowing that people treat me differently because I'm a pastor, I actually try to hide the fact that I'm a pastor. But I don't try to hide the fact that I'm a Christian. And that when people know that we are Christians, then it begins to reflect upon them of what Jesus has done in our lives. And as you go out and want to reach out to your friends, just be human. Acknowledge the fact that you don't have it all together. Acknowledge the fact that, that you are like this Samaritan woman, as we're going to see what she's like. She's hurting. And you hurt. And I hurt. And life is difficult. And we can't pretend that we have it all together because nobody does. Christians don't have it all together. What we have is we have a God who holds us and holds it all together for us. So when Jesus not only expresses his humanity, we see secondly what he does, and what we can do is he breaks barriers. He breaks barriers and he builds bridges. And you and I do this through conversation. Let me read verse 6 on. And it says, It was about the sixth hour when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And it tells us that it's about noon, right? Noon was not the time people went to go get water at the well. It is too hot. It's 115 degrees. You know, you don't want to be out at that time of day, right? So they would go and they would get the water in the early morning or after the sun had set later at night. And so God would work. Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, where, where was he? So God would work. All right. That's right. See, we're human. Right? So stuff happens. All right. Okay. And so, and so they would draw water in the morning and they would draw water at night, but not in the middle of the day. So she was going there hoping nobody would be at the well. But Jesus was there. And, and he says to her, would you do something for me? Would, would you give me some water? And she goes, what? Now, now, she might say what for a number of reasons. Number one, what is, she's a woman. And any self-respecting Jew would not talk to a woman out in public, and especially a rabbi. And, and so she goes, what? Why would you talk to me? I'm a woman. And secondly, She almost acknowledges her own sense of prejudice against Jews. She goes, you're just a Jew. Why would you talk to me? And so there's a sense of bitterness, a sense of brokenness, this prejudice between these two races. And and she's like, huh, why would you talk to me? But Jesus does. And so Jesus says, I want to be your friend by talking to her. He reaches out to her. He was kind to her. He was gentle. And there was something in Jesus that began to break down the barrier between Jew and Samaritans. And these are the same things that we can do. You know, if you want to make a friend, there's, there's, right, in this story, there's a way that teaches us how we can make a friend. Ask them to do something for you. Ask them to do something for you. You know, maybe you could say, hey, you know, I forgot my cell phone. Can I borrow your cell phone? You know, maybe you have your cell phone. Just don't tell them. Go, hey, can I borrow your cell phone? You know, or, or something. You know, hey, could you, could you um, do this for me? Just ask them for a favor. Or do a favor for somebody. Just do a favor for them. That opens doors. But there's other things that, that you and I can do. The Bible tells us there were at least two major things that Christians did that drew attention to themselves that they belonged to Jesus Christ. And we see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And the first thing is, it's generosity. Generosity. You can be generous to other people. You know, Carol's a very generous person. And, and um, throughout the year, sometimes she'll go baking. And she um, likes to go to see the neighbors, and I'm not quite like that as much, but I should be. Uh, but she'll go with the neighbors, and she'll take cookies or bake bits to them. And our next-door neighbor has really responded to that. And, and so we don't know if they're Christians or not yet, but, but we're sort of getting to know them a little, very little bit. But, um, but we're reaching out to them. And, and so one day she took over something to them, and this, this guy... He, he thanked her for the cookies, and then he just gave her a big hug. 
right? And it just so surprised her. But generosity, doing a favor for somebody. Acts chapter 2, 44 and 45. Okay, so generosity is up there, okay? All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. They gave to anyone as he had They were generous, right? They were generous. They saw people with needs, and they said, you know, I can help fulfill that need. Every one of us can do that in some way. We can fulfill the need of somebody else. We may not fulfill all their needs, but we can be part of helping. We can be generous. And then the second thing we see in Acts chapter 2 is in verse 46, and that is that they were hospitable. They had hospitality. They invited people into their homes. They invited them probably, you know, I don't know if they would have restaurants back then too much, but go out to eat, but that's what we can do. Like, we may not just invite people into our homes, but we can take people out. We can have a meal together. We can share. We can be hospitable. The Bible says in verse 46 of chapter 2 of Acts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You know, how many times are you eating with somebody and then you just start laughing? I think it happens almost at every meal if you're there long enough. You're relaxed, and you just start sharing, and you just start saying funny things, and you just start being yourself to one another. And so if you can think right now of some people that you know, I just want you to think of them right now. Who is somebody that you know who you know doesn't know Jesus? Classmate? Neighbor? Family member? Just think of that. Somebody you work with? Old friend? New friend? You are given the responsibility of reaching out to that person, being human to them. And you can be generous to them, spending time with them, and you could be hospitable to them, inviting them over to your house. And these are the things that God gives us as opportunities to break down barriers and build bridges through relationships and conversations. But Jesus goes on. And now once he has that, we see what he does and what you and I can do as well is that he invokes curiosity. He makes them curious, but he also invites questions because we need to have dialogue with people. We hope that they'll ask us questions like, what do you really believe about God? Or you, you believe in God? Jesus answered her, it says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Well, Jesus made her curious. He said, you know, I, I can give you living water. Well, she had come to the well and she probably came with a bucket. She probably came with a rope. And she was going to let down her bucket into the, the well and, and pull out water. And she looked at Jesus and she said, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. 
How are you going to get this living water? You're not even going to get the water in the well here. Now, now, living water back then meant something different than what you and I might think. So living water to the Jew or to the Samaritan simply meant running water, like a river. And so she would have thought, really? Like, now I'm really confused. There's no rivers here. Where are you going to get living water? And if you're talking about water in the well, well how are you going to get that out? You don't even have a bucket. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But you can see that Jesus has piqued her curiosity. Jesus has said something that made her curious. And you and I can do that as well. You're just having a general conversation with one of your friends, and, and you can just say something. Like, yeah, you know, one time when I was at church, you know, that's something that happened to me as well with a friend. Or you could say, oh, you know, the other day you said something. I said, oh, the other day I was reading in the Bible that it says this. There are ways that we can peek and, and sort of give people a little taste of Christianity. They won't know what it is, but it might make them curious. And Jesus did that with her. He said, I want to give you living water. And so he, he actually is creating in her a desire to ask a question. And so she does. Like, what do you mean, essentially, is what she's saying. I don't understand. And so Jesus gives her this invitation. If you ask me, I'll give you living water. You and I can give invitations to other people, too. We can give invitations to people so that they might be able to know Jesus. We can invite them into our homes. We can invite them into conversations. We can invite them to church. Invitations. Invitation is the way that I became a Christian. Um, this girl asked me, would you like to join me at church? And she's cute. And um, if that was the way I was going to be able to spend time with her, I'll go to church. She had an ulterior motive. She wanted me to hear the gospel. I heard the gospel that night. I gave my life to Jesus because of an invitation. Mickey, our tour guide, was born in a Jewish family in Russia. They immigrated to Israel to help repopulate Israel as they were doing that in the 1940s and 1950s, to repopulate Israel so that it could become a full-bodied nation again. And so he was going to college in the Holy Land in the, in the um, Middle East, and he met a Christian. He didn't know he was a Christian, but he just met him. They became friends, and the Christian said, hey, Mickey, would you like to go and see how Christians worship Jesus? Mickey thought, that's an interesting question. Would I like to go and see Christians and how they worship Jesus? He goes, yeah, I'd like to see that. And so he went. And he ended up giving his life to Jesus, becoming a Christian. We can invite people. We can invite them into our lives. We can invite them into our homes. We can invite them here to harvest. In Acts chapter 42, 40, verses 42 to 47, we also see that worshiping together was also a testimony. Worshiping together was also a testimony. 
In verse 46 and 47 of Acts chapter 2, the Bible says every day, every day, these Christians, they continue to meet together where? In the temple courts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved because they were worshiping God in the temple courts. And you and I, as we worship God here, this is like our temple court. And when we worship here, this is where we can invite people to join us. On September 25th, in just another month, we'll be having our annual friendship lunch right here. And this is the time of year where we can invite people to churches. People are really getting, re, um, getting all started up again with school and, and summer's over. And people typically are more open at that time and less busy and ready to do something different. And so you can invite them to come to church. Now you were thinking of some people just a few minutes ago when I asked you to think of who do you know, who do you care about, who do you want to know Jesus who doesn't know Jesus yet. I'd like you to write down their name there in that box. It says Harvest Friendship Lunch, September 25th. And then just write their name on the blank spaces there. And you can do that right now. Maybe other names will come to you later. But Lord, Lord, I pray that this person or these people will come with me to harvest. Now, September 25th would be a great day, but they can come with you any day. September 25th would be nice because they'll get to have lunch and they'll get to meet other people and it's, it's always a fun time. It's a great time. In October, we're going to be having something later and we'll be telling you more about that as a sort of a church family event. That'll also be a way that you'll be able to invite people. But right now, September 25th is the important date. You can invite somebody to church that day so they can hear the gospel presented to them that day as we'll be talking about Jesus and how he gives us true rest, how he gives us Sabbath rest. That's what we're talking about on that day, on September 25th. How Jesus brings a true peace into our hearts, and that's what everybody needs. Everybody needs peace. Everybody's looking for satisfaction. And that's our fourth point for today, is that Jesus promises their ultimate satisfaction. Jesus promises this woman ultimate satisfaction. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Remember I told you that she was thinking of living waters maybe like a river or a stream, but Jesus is talking about eternal life. Jesus is talking about a living well of water that can go into a person and give them refreshment all the time. In Psalm 36, verse 9, the Bible says, For with you, as God, with you is the fountain of life. And Jesus is saying, I am the fountain of life. And Jesus is saying, I am God who does this for you. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, the Bible says, Come, all, all, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. It's free. Come, 
by wine and milk without money and without cost. We get it for free, this fountain. In this world, everybody is living in a desert. A desert where we are thirsty for significance. And we are thirsty for satisfaction. And we are thirsty for things of the needs that are so deep within us that only God can fulfill. We're looking for purpose. We desperately are looking for rest and contentment. We're looking for healing that goes beyond the body and into the soul. And, and physical water never can enter the soul. But living water, it breathes there. It breathes there as well. And it bubbles up there. David Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, said this, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Because we all live in a desert. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And the mathematician and Christian Blaise Pascal said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus, made known through Jesus. You have a testimony to give if you're a Christian, that you can tell other people that they can know Jesus. You have a way because your life is special. Your life is unique. There are people you can touch that I will never meet. Well, unless, of course, you bring them to church on September 25th. That'll be cool. But otherwise, there are other people in your life that I won't get to meet on a regular basis. But you will be able to share your life with them and your testimony. I don't know if you saw it on Monday night at the Olympics, last Monday night, but um, just happened to be watching and, and saw the, the uh, men's uh, diving competition, the synchronized diving competition. Anybody see that on Monday night, the men's synchronized? Not that many people. Good, so I can tell you. Okay, so that's uh, David Budia and um, Steele Johnson. I don't know which one's who, but um, okay, those are the two guys, all right? Uh, and they won silver, and uh, they were awesome. They were just amazing. They were so excited. So they're interviewed. They're interviewed afterwards about, about what their experience is like. And they're saying, you know, like, how did you handle the pressure? What does it mean to you to win the silver medal? And um, Steele Johnson, he said this. He said, it's cool, okay, it's cool. It's cool because this is exciting. This is fun, winning a silver medal. But this is not what my identity will be for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm Steele Johnson, the Olympian. But at the same time, I'm here to love and serve Christ. My identity is rooted in Christ, not in flips that we're doing. That's just amazing. NBC didn't edit that out, right? That's just awesome. That was on the news. I mean, it's just right there in the, the program. And then... Then not only did they let Steele Johnson talk, but then they asked his partner, they asked um, David Padilla, you know, and, and what was it like for you to win the silver medal? And he said, you know, well, well, Steele said it perfectly. I don't know if I could say it any better, but my identity is not in diving. 
I love diving. It's great. I'm so excited to win silver medal. But that's not my identity. My identity is in Christ. And he said, we can't take credit for this. To God be the glory. You know, you and I are the Samaritan woman. We're broken, and we're needy, and we're sinful, and we're thirsty. And we happened to meet Jesus one day, and we took that living water, and he lives in us still. And what does he want to do with that living water but to spill it out to other people? Because everybody else you know is the Samaritan woman too. Broken, prejudiced. She's also a sinner. I don't think I mentioned that, but the reason why she came at noon, she's probably known to be a prostitute. If you read the story, Jesus knows that she's had many husbands and she's living with a man right then who's not her husband. Jesus wasn't afraid to hang out with people like that. Sinners, just like you and me, everybody else around us who needs Jesus. And so this is our call, this is our responsibility, to love and to share Jesus with others. And you can just do that through your life and through your words and through your friendships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thirsty. We're so hungry. We're so broken. We're so needy. We're just like David. Our whole being longs for you. In a dry, parched land, there's no water. Yeah, there's no water in this earth, Lord. We know that. But there is living water from heaven that will quench that thirst. And we learned of this, Lord, as we saw you come to earth to share in our humanity and to die on the cross to fulfill our need for love, significance, and forgiveness. And Lord, we want to celebrate that, but we want to celebrate it humbly. We want to celebrate it understanding all that it meant to you. So, Father, as we go into this time of communion, help us to do transactions with you of the heart. To know that our sins are forgiven. And that our lives are yours. In your name we pray. Amen. And so this is not a ritual. This is a sacred moment, though. That we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And then he broke that bread and he, he gave it to his disciples. And he says, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. 
And then after he had taken the bread, he, he took a cup, wine. And he said, and this blood is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat the bread and as often as you drink the cup, you remember my death until I come. Do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what we're going to do right now. And so if you are a Christian, you're invited to this meal to remember what your Lord has done for you. This, this blood that fulfills our deepest thirst. This bread that fulfills our deepest hunger. But if you're not yet a Christian and you want to become one, it's not a transaction that happens by a physical action, so just taking communion won't make anybody a Christian. But it's a transaction of the heart and of faith Maybe today you're ready for that step. And just as the bread's coming to you and just as the juice is coming to you, you just say a prayer to God. You say, Lord Jesus, I'm thirsty. I need to. I give my life to you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Lord Jesus, give me that living water, please. I accept you as my Savior. And I want to live for you. So I hope that for all of us, this time of communion would be more than just an action, but a transaction of our hearts. Would the ushers please come forward? Please take, and as you feel ready, you can go ahead and participate and take on your own, or if you want to wait until the end, you can wait and take it with those of us who, who take it as, as a group. Our Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He says, take this, eat this. This is my body given for you. Let us take. And in the same way, he took the cup and he says, this is, this is my blood. It is the new covenant. And as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you remember my death until I come. Let us remember our Lord's blood. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for all the pain you went through. Thank you for giving us this gift of living water and eternal life. In your name we pray. Amen.